This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. This is Chapter 26 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. We dive into politics this week, both the real and fictional kind. First up is an explosive new book by reporter Joshua Green that explores the relationship between President Trump and Steve Bannon. Then we get two different takes on what our country would look like if the U.S. weren't one cohesive union. Sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. And there are some who would apply that characterization to the current state of affairs in our nation's capital. Bloomberg senior national correspondent Joshua Green has followed President Trump since the very beginning of his campaign. His new book, Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump and the Storming of the Presidency, is a revealing look at the relationship between those two men. He spoke with our Paul Murnane about when he first crossed paths with Bannon. Yeah, I met him back in 2011 when I had just come back from Alaska doing a big profile of Sarah Palin, who everybody uh, in Washington thought was going to run for president in 2012. And Palin was kind of the Donald Trump of that presidential cycle, you know, the, the, the kind of catnip for political reporters that people got all excited about. Um, she didn't end up running, but Bannon at the time was part of her inner circle and doing a documentary movie about her. And I didn't know him, but he reached out and said, hey, I have this Palin movie. Will you come see it? And I came, saw the movie. I didn't think a whole lot of it. Uh, but Bannon himself was this kind of vivid, charismatic, wild man candidate or, or uh, uh, strategist who uh, had what I thought were interesting ideas about this emergent brand of populist, nationalist conservatism. So we stayed in touch ever since, uh, talked from time to time, did a big profile of him in, in Bloomberg Business Week in 2015. And then we took over the Trump campaign in 2016. Uh, you know, we, we, we kept talking. And so this this book, Devil's Bargain, is really the story of it's Bannon's backstory, right. how he came together with Trump and how that relationship really produced this great presidential upset. He's the ideas man. Uh, he has his stances, his feelings. Um, he seems to stand in stark contrast to Trump. Trump doesn't seem to have any really tremendously deep-seated beliefs, at least politically. I think, that, you know, the way I think of it is, you know, Trump has impulses. He has kind of gut feelings and intuition. And what Bannon does is he brings an entire political infrastructure to kind of support those impulses and feelings. You can go back, and I do this in the book. I also tell the story of Trump's political rise, which I date back to 1988 when he first started talking about running for president. He would go on Larry King Live, and he would talk a little bit about his politics. And there is a striking similarity between what Trump was saying then and what he says now is all about trade and how foreign countries were ripping us off and how we had to stand up for the little guy. Um, I think what Bannon did was allow Trump to flesh that out with real policies and give it a kind of a historical um, uh, sweep that Trump understood made him look a little bit more serious because, of course, at the 
time he began this, you know, we all thought he was just trying to goose the ratings for The Apprentice, and nobody in my world of political journalism ever took him seriously. Bannon came up, you know, he was in the Navy, and then he was in, in at Harvard Business School. I tell the story of his time in Wall Street and Goldman Sachs. But Bannon has always loved entertainment and propaganda. He wound up in Hollywood as a film producer and later as a documentary filmmaker. But what he really loves is studying uh, the Soviet and Nazi propagandist filmmakers in the 1930s and 1940s. I think he understands intuitively the power of the imagery of, of, of himself, not as this public figure on TV where Trump can get sick of him and where he can be embarrassed, but as this Oz-like figure behind the curtain. Um, you know, he cultivates this, this popular image of himself as this kind of dark Lord Vader figure behind the scenes. So I think that's very much intentional uh, as a way of adding to kind of the mystery and the romance of, of, of the Steve Bannon legend. What's your sense of his role in the administration now? I mean, a couple of months ago, we would have been talking about uh, how Bannon ultimately lost out to, you know, the New York yeah. faction, as it was described, you know, the Jareds and the Ivankas. What, what's your sense as to what his role is now? Well, you know, in, in the Trump White House, there is always, uh, you know, some kind of a Game of Thrones plot or intrigue going on. And Bannon was clearly the most powerful advisor coming after the election because most people thought of him as having uh, more or less won it for Trump, or at least uh, guiding him to that upset win. And so he had a lot of power in the early days of the Trump administration and, and, and tried to pursue this kind of shock and awe strategy. Uh, with a travel ban and all of these things. And, and pretty much right away, the whole administration went off the rails. And I think at that point, the New York faction, led by Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, tried to uh, move Bannon aside, push him all the way out of the White House. Um, although I think what it really was that hurt Bannon was that Trump got angry that everybody on TV, on Saturday Night Live and so on, was portraying Bannon as being the real president, not President Trump. I mean, Trump is a very insecure guy with a very big ego. He didn't like that. Um, so Bannon got put in the doghouse. I think now, though, Bannon is, to an extent, Bannon is back because Trump and his administration are so embroiled in this Russia scandal. And at least so far, Bannon has not. Um, and the way uh, Devil's Bargain, my book, is constructed is I, I try and make clear that I think the Machiavelli portrayal of Bannon is a little wrong. What he really is is the guy, the soldier that Trump turns to in a pinch, whether it's uh, the Megyn Kelly-Fox debate back in the GOP primaries, whether it's the Access Hollywood tape and the fallout from that that Trump had to survive, or now uh, with Russia and special counsel Bob Mueller investigating him. Bannon is the guy that Trump always turns to because he's the ultimate loyalist and he'll never abandon him. So I think just due to Trump's own needs as a president, for somebody to defend him and to try and protect him against this encroaching scandal, uh, that Bannon is back in his good graces, although I don't ever think he'll have quite the power that he did back in January. He told Trump during the, the, the thick of the campaign when Trump was under fire talking about George Soros and media and banks, I think it was the JDL at one point, put out this statement about, uh, you know, old stereotypes. And Bannon told Trump, uh, you know, darkness is good. Maybe that's the advice he'd be giving Trump now in this whole Russia thing. I, you know, I think it might be. But Bannon has always believed, like, he he's very good at, you know, intuiting and analyzing and stoking um, the, the, the 
subconscious anxieties of, of voters, of different kinds of people. Trump's whole campaign, if you go back and listen to what he said that last month, it is it is almost as if we are in the midst of an apocalypse and everybody is in this sort of dark league, you know, bankers and politicians, um, crony capitalists, all that sort of thing. It made for very effective messaging. And there was a dog whistle element to it. It propagated uh, some some anti-Semitic stereotypes. There, you know, race was was a very big issue in Trump's campaign uh, because there were African American protesters, you know, beat up at Trump's rallies. I think Bannon cultivated a lot of that and it was very powerful. I think the problem is that works better in the context of a campaign where you're trying to destroy an enemy. In this case, it would have been Hillary Clinton than it does in a, in a Washington legislative context because. What Trump and Bannon most need to be doing right now is not painting a picture of apocalypse, but convincing nervous Republican senators to get behind a health care plan. And that's an entirely different set of skills that it's not clear to me that Trump or Bannon or anybody in the White House has. Bannon came in with these deep held beliefs. Uh, do you have any sense? I mean, it's only six months in, but do you have any sense that Washington you know, can change him? Is I mean, or is he capable of changing and kind of maybe turning into you know a typical Washington insider? You know that that is the big question about Donald Trump. Can he adjust to his current circumstances? And right now, it, just look at his Twitter feed. It, it really doesn't seem like he can. He's kind of you know raging against the media, against Bob Mueller, against James Comey, doesn't seem to be changing things up. I was speaking to a longtime Trump advisor the other day who pointed out something to me I thought was interesting. He said, you know, Trump originally was a developer. You know, he went he, he went bankrupt or near bankrupt a couple of times, and eventually he adjusted, and his business became not real estate, but really licensing, licensing his name and uh, licensing himself once he came into The Apprentice. And the advisor said, you know, what I'm looking to see about Trump, can he make the same kind of adjustment as president in Washington? Can he go, um, can he find a way forward that is more successful than the one he's pushed so far, which really hasn't gotten him anywhere in terms of legislation? And I think that's still an open question. And I think the question of whether or not he can adjust is also a question that should be applied to Bannon, who has never worked in government before. And while he may be uh, a good campaign strategist, hasn't shown uh, any real capacity at this point for getting legislation through Congress. Final question for you, Joshua Green, the author of Devil's Bargain, this book about Steve Bannon. is: What do you think the future for Bannon is? He seems to have made this great accomplishment in getting Donald Trump into the White House, and he has this administration position now. What would surprise you about his future if you could look five years, ten years down the road and see what he's doing? You know, what what would surprise me is if he manages to adjust to the reality of legislating, of of maybe even trying to work in a bipartisan manner. I had these debates with Bannon early in the administration. I said, you know, why did you start with health care, which no Democrat can support? You know, you could have done a Trump infrastructure plan and built roads and bridges. You know, you you can almost imagine Trump out there at the ribbon cutting on on, on the new Trump bridge you know, and that's that's a policy that would have been difficult for Democrats to resist because it would have meant jobs. Uh, you know, infrastructure is good. Voters can kind of understand how that's a positive in their lives. I think the thing that would surprise me is if 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 Bannon and Trump managed to make that adjustment because right now they still seem to be 
captive to the same mindset that they were when they came in, that this is a war and this is a battle, that the elite, that the deep state uh, and the elite media is out to get them, and they are just going to fight and fight and fight um, against uh, enemies that aren't really the ones that are slowing them down, when what they really need to be doing is adjusting to the realities of Washington and the strictures that it imposes on a White House and finding a way to take their ideas, which were very distinct and, and more popular than any of us imagined, and, and find a way to get them into law. Devil's Bargain from Penguin Press is the new book about Steve Bannon by Joshua Green. It is great to talk with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for for having me. Switching gears now to fictional politics, The Separatist is the latest entry in the Newsmakers series featuring reporter Erica Sparks, who, in her quest for truth, ends up in some pretty dangerous situations. I recently spoke with author Lise Wheel about the book, which centers around a fictional secessionist movement in the U.S. This book hits a nerve regarding the tensions dividing parts of this country. Why don't you tell us a little bit more? You know, it's just a fact of any of our electoral um, candidates that uh, one side feels like they've lost. And when that happens, um, there is just a natural tendency, kind of going back to when you're in kindergarten and one side says, you know, I'm just going to take the whole sandbox with all the toys in it and I'm going to pick up and move. And that's what you kind of have kind of at a base level with a secessionist movement where folks in one state or state say, you know, look, we've had it with the whole national election or elections over the years, and we don't like what's happening with the national electorate. We don't like what's happening with our politicians. And instead of sort of trying to work within the political system, we're going to just take up and kind of move our sandbox and just go elsewhere. And you're seeing it with really um, a lot of money and a lot of organization. When I was doing the research for a novel, and this is, you know, fiction, this is supposed to be a fun beach read, which I think Separatist is. Um, it's all of that. But, you know, I take it very seriously in the sense that to have a fun beach read, to have something you're going to, you know, have fun with, you've also got to have the reader think, you know, well, this actually could happen because, you know, this, this is really set in, in reality. Well, to do that, you know, the the read has to be realistic. So I set myself up for things like Google Alerts and things like that. And so I put in things like secession, separatist, secessionist movements. And I thought, well, maybe I'll get a Google alert uh, once a week or maybe even twice a week. I am barraged every day with secessionist, secessionist alerts, that kind of thing. And they're not from, you know, some guy in Montana that's putting something out in a typewriter. These are from organized, moneyed uh, groups. Obviously, from California, uh, the Cascadia movement, the Cal Exit movement is very organized in California, Oregon, Washington. Uh, Texas obviously has, you know, legislation, draft legislation. But it's more than that. You find it in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, even New York. I mean, there are organized uh, groups that really have legislation out there that are going places that really could have a fighting chance of, of winning, even though there are there is a Supreme Court uh, ruling right on point that says secession is unconstitutional. It's illegal in this country. 
Now, did these modern secessionist groups, is that what sort of served as the jumping off point for you? Or did you come to this topic some other way? As I was writing The Separatist, Brexit happened in the UK. And so all the, the publishers sort of came together and said, wait, should we publish, you know, Separatists when Brexit is happening? And of course, we decided, no, we needed to publish the candidate because, you know, that was so much more timely. And so we waited for Separatists to come out this June. But I'm a little nervous as I keep writing, just like, wait, should I just write, you know, about world peace and everything happens and everybody's happy forever and ever? <laughs> it's a little nerve wracking. <laughs> yeah, you, you have your finger on the pulse maybe a little bit too clearly. <laughs> it's a little scary. That's what I'm saying. Maybe it's just world peace. Everybody's happy and nothing ever, never everything bad. You know, everything happens wonderfully forever and ever. That would be great. <laughs> so... <laughs> Your books feature a lot of strong women, whether that's Erica Sparks, whether it's President Winters. But also what I found surprising is that your villain, your Machiavellian character, is also a woman. Yes. Why? Uh, Well, oh, boy. You know, um, this is great. I'm getting psychological um, therapy right now. Send me your bill. (laughs) well, because women are, as men, obviously are very complex. I don't want to write about perfect people because, A, they don't exist, and B, um, they would be boring, and I don't want to write about boring people. And I, I like to write about people that, you know, Erica's very, um, she's a complex character. She's, she falls and she picks herself up. And that's why I think she's kind of lovable in a sense that, you know, she's always second guessing herself about her parenting skills. She's kind of a horrible mother, actually, in some ways. Really, she is. And he's, you know, she's got some major flaws. And I like that about her. Um, And and then the villainess, I've got, you know, women are really, really horrible in my books and, and, and treacherous. And I think that's good. I mean, I, I, I think that, um, you know, this, the, the, and without, again, giving too much away, you've got a strong character in, in uh, the separatist who uses her strength in horrible, tragic ways. And I think that's, to me, I wanted to show a woman that um, uses strength in a bad way. And to show that women, you know, aren't just, you know, Mary Poppins. And I think that's that's true to reality as well. And to show that. And you were speaking about Erica being flawed. And I wonder, in her quest for the truth, does she take too yeah. many risks? There are some times when I just think Erica should just stay in bed and just, you know, have a cup of tea and, and watch, you know, uh, soap operas, absolutely, for her own safety and health of others, for her, certainly for health, her health and, and the close, people closest to her, she should. Yes, she takes a lot of risks. And for her safety, she should not take as many risks. Um, but she really puts getting to the truth above all else. And that is a flaw for her because I think she puts that ahead sometimes of her daughter and of her mother and people close to her. I'm not sure I would take those same risks. I would probably put my daughter ahead. Um, I've got a son and daughter, and I would probably put them ahead. I would not make the same choices a lot, a lot of times that Erica does myself. 
but I'm not Erica. And I think that for her, she makes the only decisions she can. And those are to take those risks. And, you know, for her, in her psychology, in her mental, um, her mental, you know, capacity, that's really what she has to do, given her background and her, um, how she grew up and, and the things, the demons that she's kind of uh, got in her head. And, and I, you know, explain that in the book. Um, and, and when you read Separatists, you'll understand that. That this is, these are really the only choices she can make, given those demons that are in her head, or demons or whatever you want to call it. And um, that's what she has to do. It's really what she has to do, to, is take those risks. And she really does consider journalism a, a noble profession. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and I talk about that. I mean, you know, talk about it. I mean, I try to show it as, rather, as opposed to talk about it in the book. Because, um, and, and that's the fun thing, too, is because I've been in journalism for so long. Uh, I was at Fox, you know, for 15 years. And before that, I mean, I was, you know, at, um, NPR. I mean, I've, I've been around for a long time. I'm 102 years old. <laughs> um, not really. Um, but... I, I've been, you know, in print, I've been in radio, I've been in television. I mean, I've seen it from a lot of different sides. And I wanted to really show, you know, that 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 pressure because she's trying to be this star. She is a star and she's got her own show. And, you know, she wants to get the ratings and she wants to bring in the money, the advertising for Mort, you know, who was pressing, pressing, you know, the suits. And yet, She's put. She wants to also that quest for truth and the quest for truth and ratings and getting ratings. You know, was wonderful if they coincide. It's happenstance if they coincide, but it's completely happenstance. And uh, she's forced to recognize that. And then she's got to make a choice. What does she want really? The stardom, the money that all that comes with it, and the recognition and all that, and the feeding of the ego, or the truth. And uh, that's a that's a mighty clash for her. What is she going to choose? Do you see that as a clash that exists now in the the whole Rumble news? Absolutely. I mean, it's not always black and white, you know, as as, as poignant as I try to make it in a novel, because this is, a, you know, a, after all, a thriller. I'm a page turner, but it's not it's it's more mundane on a day to day basis. But. Are, are, are journalists facing those things in a more mundane way every day? Absolutely, 110%. And now that I've got a little bit of perspective, now that I'm not, you know, in the trenches every day, I can 100 million times percent tell you that's true. So one of the other things I want to bring up, that while your book is clearly about the separatist movements, you do sprinkle a lot of references to climate change throughout. Is that a direction we might see you go in next? I, I think it's huge. I mean, I, um, I I like to tackle these big issues. I think, you know, these books, yes, they're fiction. But uh, again, when we, when we started talking about this, I think t- uh, tackling in fiction, because I, 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 I assume a very intelligent reader um, who wants not only to be entertained, but to be, you know, be having an intellectual conversation, you know, as we're as we're reading, um, as we're as you as you and I are reading along together, 
that we're having a we're having a conversation about really important topics, whether it's separatism, whether it's you know the political uh, structure, the candidacy, whether it's you know what's going on in, with the news and faux news, and yeah, climate change is huge. You know, I've got kids twenty and twenty four. What kind of world are we you know talking about here? You know, for our kids and our grandchildren, but climate change is a huge part of that. We better be discussing that, especially with what's going on, you know, right now um, in, our, in our political climate and the, and the agreements that we're signing or not signing and, you know, the, what we're doing uh, politically with the rest of our, you know, uh, with, the, with the rest of our world and how we're negotiating with the rest of our political leaders. I mean, these are things that are going to affect our, our kids, our grandkids and, the, and everybody um, come on. These are issues that Erica Sparks and other journalists are dealing with right now. So, of course, I'm going to deal with this. I don't need to. Sh- I'm not shying away from any of it. What would the U.S. look like if the Civil War never happened and slavery still existed? That's the premise of Underground Airlines by Ben H. Winters. He tells us where the idea came from. Unfortunately, it came from real events. Like a lot of Americans, I am and you know have been and continue to be sort of distressed and shocked, particularly by incidents of police brutality uh, in black neighborhoods across the U.S. Um, or against black individuals across the U.S. Which you know, um, which when those incidents happen, they gather a lot of attention and a lot of outrage, as they should. But then the attention sort of tends to move on to other issues, uh, and we forget that. The, or some of us uh, forget that those incidents are just sort of the tip of the iceberg of a lot of um, systematic discrimination and anti-black racism that survives in this country, despite how far we few we are from the time of the Civil War uh, and the time when slavery was ended. So it was a way um, of thinking about the connections between historical slavery, you know, between this historical fact, this historical evil, and the contemporary issues that we are still struggling with um, as a country, uh, a way of um, examining present day things in the light of our history. But this isn't just a straight alternative history lesson. There's also a mystery that you've written. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, so the character of the center of the story, he is a uh, himself a former enslaved person. Um, and and now uh, he is, sort of has made a devil's bargain. And he works for the U.S. Marshal Service as an enforcer of the Fugitive Slave Act. Um, because one of the one of the really awful things uh, among many about, you know, slavery that actually functioned in this country was that, you know, if a slave escaped from the South and they managed to make it to the North, they were not safe because federal law required their return. And the mechanism for that was the U.S. Marshal Service and the Fugitive Slave Law. Uh, And so what I've done in the novel is sort of made that the crux of a mystery. The the novel sort of plays out as a kind of manhunt, although really what it is is the story of my hero um, who starts in this very wicked position doing this very wicked work and the way that he sort of finds his own way um, to to uh, to true freedom, to sort of um, emancipating himself, as it were, from his from uh, this devil's bargain that he's made. So even as he is searching for this other man, he's really searching for himself, so to speak. And as I read your book, what I found the most interesting is trying to figure out what you were going to change and what you were going to leave alone hmm. in terms of the world that you've constructed. How did you decide uh, what you were going to leave in place and what you were going to change? Well, you know, that's the sort of thing that when you're writing, it's like you never quite know. Um, that's sort of the magical thing about writing. And I hate to talk about writing that way because it is so much more of a of a craft than it is an art. You know, you have to sit down and do the work. But sometimes you surprise yourself. And I think that as I was constructing the world of the book, it was important to me to make sure that readers understood that this is much more of a um, – 
you know, that the world that we live in is, is too much like the world of the book. You know, it's, I like to say this is an alternate history that's not alternate enough. So there are moments when my hero, uh, who is obviously is, is African-American, when he becomes conscious of his sort of status of, of um, the way that he is looked at differently than white people are looked at, perhaps by law enforcement or by other people on the street, um, that I think is uh, unfortunately for a lot of um, black men or, you know, black people in this country is, will be familiar. So things like that, I wanted there to be a, an, a perhaps uncomfortable sense of parallelism to reality. And then other things that like, for example, there were certain historical personalities. Um, I think, uh, you know, James Brown pops up in the book and um, Martin Luther King Jr. has mentioned, you know, people who no matter what course American history took, I think by, by force of their personality and their um, extraordinary abilities would have turned up in one way or another. So there was a little bit of an imaginative exercise or of almost a fun thing of figuring out what sorts of lives certain individuals would have led um, in this alternate timeline. And another interesting change is technology or rather the lack thereof. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, one of the things that I think would be different about America if slavery had survived, I like to, I hopefully, is that, uh, and the way I portray it in the book, is that we become much less integrated in the global economy, much more of a pariah state in the way that South Africa eventually became um, toward the end of apartheid. Where, uh, so we have fewer trading partners. We don't have the close, um, and we also don't have the economic heft um, that we do uh, or that we have had in, uh, in true American history. So we see in the book that um, America is sort of a laggard in uh, in certain technologies and um, just a general, although I don't get too deep in the weeds in this because it isn't the point of the book isn't the nitty gritty of the, the world building. But, you know, a general sense that America is not the economic powerhouse that we are in reality. Now, while your book is entertaining, we, we did talk about, you know, the the state of race relations in the country now. Is that what you hope people take away from it is something that they they examine the world that we're in now and maybe a way that they can change or the way they change their approach with other people? For sure. I think a book like this would be a failure if someone were to put it down and go, great read. That was a lot of fun. You know, I really enjoyed the mystery. Certainly it is my goal to entertain and to um, to sort of draw us into an exciting storyline, you know. But for me, the whole purpose of this book was not to use uh, this terrible history as a kind of backdrop for a mystery, but rather the inverse of that, which is to use my, hopefully my abilities as a mystery writer to tell, um, you know, to, to point our attention or to focus our attention on something that is very real, um, which is this continuing legacy of, of slavery in, in the United States. So certainly the, the process of researching the book and writing the book and, and talking about the book has opened my eyes much wider than they ever were to, to these issues. And um, yeah, I, I, I would certainly hope that people who read it um, might come away with it with a, a sort of enlarged perspective or a willingness to engage um, that they didn't have before. And the book kind of ends on a question mark in a way. Can we expect more yeah. from this world and more from Victor slash brother? I don't think so, which is, I mean, who knows, right? Life is long and I never, you know, you never know with writing projects, but I don't have plans to write a sequel. And in part, it's it, in large part, it's because I, I wouldn't want is that just like I was just saying, you know, you don't want this book to just be an adventure. You don't want it to just be a fun thing. Right. Because the world is so um, intense and it's such a, a political thing to write about. You know, like I, I I wouldn't want a sequel to just feel like, oh, it's a cool. It's another adventure, you know, for our hero. It's like he sort of he took his long journey in this book. You know, he, he got from A to B, I, I like to think. So I'm not sure what the sort of emotional or, or political value would be of a second novel. Um, I wouldn't want it to be merely good, you know, merely entertaining. I want it to be powerful in some way. And I, I would hate to 
to do another one and have it not be as powerful as I hope the first one is. And in terms of uh, slavery, it, you kind of uh, address all different types, whether it's the extremely literal kind, there's the emotional kind as like someone's bond and their attachment to someone they love, like we have with Martha and Samson and Martha and her son. You know, there's yeah. the free but not free kind. Was that was it your intent to explore all those different bonds that kind of keep everybody together, whether it's a good bond or a bad one? Well, that's a really interesting question. I don't know if that was my conscious intent for there to be a kind of um, uh, kind of sense of comparison between different forms of bonds that people people have. But I I like that idea, and I, I think like yeah, it's nice to think about. Um, a kind of inverse of literal, brutal um, ownership, slavery, of there being different kinds of, of bonds in the world, you know, that we, we, we are said to possess another person when we are in love with them, or, you know, our, our children are in, in a very figurative, but also literal way, our belongings, you know, legally. So, like, I, I think that's a, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. Certainly, um, there is in this book a, like, the hero... He is no longer literally a slave. You know, he was born one and he got himself out of it. But now he has he he is forced basically to do this work that is so abhorrent that it is another form of slavery, you know. And I also touch on the idea in the book of people who work jobs that sort of might as well be slavery. Um, and you know, if you turn to the real world, like there, we, we the United States, thank God, no longer has you know, racist chattel slavery as we did at our founding, but it is not hard to look around and find forms of slavery um, uh, in the prison system or in uh, certain, uh, you know, uh, jobs, you know, certain uh, subsistence income jobs. Uh, And, you know, so I think that the sort of idea of slavery as metaphor is throughout the novel. Um, And, but, but, and also, you know, (laughs) the idea of, of, Slavery as being long over in this country uh, is a problematic one, and it's sort of worth thinking about. Ben Winters, author of Underground Airlines, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for your time. And that's this week's podcast. Let us know how we're doing. Email us at books at WCBS880.com. And don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.